Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ and by your Holy Spirit. We come to you with open Bibles and with open hearts, God, with ears that are open to hear your voice. And so, God, we invite you to say what you want to say. And Lord, we commit right now in this moment, knowing that you are God, that you are King, that you rule over all, that we are your creatures, that we are your sons and your daughters. So Lord, we will listen and obey. We will respond to your word today. And so God, I I pray that you would be present here in the proclamation of your powerful and perfect word, God. There are some things that we know, Lord, that we we need to learn, and so we invite that you would teach us, God. There There are things that we need to trust and believe, so we pray, God, that you would grant us faith, God. And we pray that you would give us courage to live lives of obedience and humble submission to your living and active word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. You can open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now to help you out with that. Just raise your hand and they'll pass one along to you. As we were moving into this uh, facility a couple of months ago, I stumbled across on a bookshelf uh, a, a few small photo albums that really chronicled the construction of this building. And so you can, you can sort of see how the structure was there as the building was completed. And, and you can notice a, sort of the, the general frame and shape of the structure. But one particular photo caught my eye. It was this one. Now there's nothing particularly exciting about, about this picture at first glance. I mean, you can barely even tell that this is the very place where we're all sitting right now. I mean, it could be any building, couldn't it be? But that's the thing about foundations. Sometimes it's not the thing that you really know or notice at first when you walk into a building, but there would be no building if there weren't a foundation. It's this invisible yet indispensable part of any structure. If there's no foundation, there's no building. It's as simple as that. And in talking about the church, not the church as a building, but the church as the capital C church, the people of God, the New Testament apostles often used architectural analogies to describe what church is like. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ might not have been the very first thing you thought of when you drove up to the building today. He he may not have been the very first thing that you thought of when you thought of the name Harvest Bible Chapel. But listen, we want you to be clear and to understand and repeat it as often as necessary that without our foundation, there is no church. And that Jesus Christ is that foundation. And who he is as the Son of God and what he has done as the sacrificial substitute for our sin, that is the bedrock. That is the reality that everything that we do is based upon. And Jesus made this promise in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Matthew 16, 18. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail 
against it. And so Jesus has provided this, he's given this promise to say that his church is going to be built. And he's given us tools to, to build the church. He's given us um, structures in which to, to build upon the foundation of who he is and what he's done. So I also noticed this picture here. You can see these are pillars that are attached to the foundation that are holding up the beams that are holding up the rest of the building. The strength of a pillar, it's it, 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 it brings compression and it allows the rest of the building to be strong, not because of the strength of the pillar itself on its own, but because the pillar connects the rest of the building to the strength of the foundation. And so here at Harvest, following on the coattails of the New Testament authors, we use an agricultural metaphor to describe our church. Jesus is our foundation, and then we have four pillars that are at the core of our church that keep us attached to the foundation. And so we're in a series right now called Our Pillars. Our pillars are preaching, prayer, witness, and worship. And we believe that when, we, we, when our church is doing those four things, there's a lot of other things that you can see. But when we are doing those four things, we know that our church will be strong. This building is strong because there's a strong foundation and there's strong pillars. And this church will be strong if we are connected to the strong foundation and have strong pillars. So today I'm really excited to jump into Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 and we're going to be learning about this pillar of preaching. Preaching the word of God. Proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology or unapologetic preaching. And, and we preach the Word of God because only the Word of God has the power to bring about transformation in people's lives because only the Word of God has the power to penetrate, to slice down right to the very soul, the very core of someone's being. And today we're going to see three reasons why we preach the Word of God from Hebrews, 12, Hebrews 4 verse 12. So take a look at it with me. It says, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So here's the first reason why we preach the Word of God. Jot this down. The Word of God is living. The Word of God is living. I chuckled to myself at my desk as I... Uh, put that as the first point, and I thought about all of you writing that down, and here's why. Because I just had you write down the word of God is living, and look back at verse 2. Look what it says. For the word of God is living. And I just thought, that's just perfect. That's what good preaching is. Good preaching is not my ideas. All I'm doing right now is just telling you what the Bible says. And the Bible says that the word of God is living, so we're all writing down the word of God is living. It's not my words that are living, it is God's words that are living. I remember a number of years ago, going back probably 10 or 15 years ago, a mature believer made a comment about, about preaching. And he said, you know, sometimes you can go to church and you can hear a man talk about God. And he said, and other times you can go to church and you can hear God speak through a man. And as soon as I heard that, as soon as I heard him say that, I said, I am going to, I am going to endeavor to be that kind of man. Not a man who merely talks about God, but a man who has God speak through him. And how, how can we ensure that God is speaking through the preaching, through the proclamation of his word? It's if it's focused on his word, if we are saying simply what God has said. Now I've got to give you a bit of a warning. So we're studying the book of Hebrews right now. 
And chances are, I'm going to mention the name Paul by accident during this sermon. And Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And so preachers get in this habit of whenever they're preaching a letter of the New Testament, they just refer to Paul. And Paul said this and Paul said that. But listen, Paul didn't write Hebrews. And we, in fact, don't know who the author of Hebrews is. And there's a great scholarly, great scholarly debate about uh, who, who it was that, that wrote Hebrews. But here's one thing that I can say with absolute academic accuracy. The author of Hebrews is dead. The Apostle Paul's dead. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are dead. I see someone sort of, well, sort of, yeah, I know they're living, they're, they're, they're with Christ now, but you see, the human authors have all gone to be with the Lord. So, so the human authors are, in fact, dead. But listen, the, the book of Hebrews was not merely written by a human. There was a, there was a co-author of the Holy Spirit uh, who inspired the author of Hebrews to, to write these words down, who inspired Moses to record Genesis and Esses, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, who inspired Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to, to pen the Gospels. And because the Spirit is the one who co-authored this book, this book is a living book. The Word of God is living. Take a look at, at the, the broader context of this passage. Look over at chapter 3, verse 7 in the book of Hebrews. It says, Therefore the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So the author of Hebrews in chapter 3, verse 7 is quoting Psalm 95. But notice who he is quoting. He's not quoting David or the son of, sons of Korah or Asaph or the psalmist. No, he says, The Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit is the one who wrote Psalm 95. And notice how it's not in the past tense. It's not saying the Holy Spirit said back then. No, the Holy Spirit says. He's saying it right now. And then it's interesting, the passage that he chooses to quote, it says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then look down at chapter 3, verse 15. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then look at chapter 4, verse 7. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Three times he quotes the same passage. Today, today, today. Here's the amazing thing. Psalm 95 was probably written sometime around, you know, 1000 BC or so. And right then and there. The psalmist was saying, today, whatever day it was, today. But then the author of Hebrews is writing, and you know, AD 66 probably, and he's writing to the people of the, the Hebrew people who are scattered all over, and he's saying to them, today. They had a today back then, but he's saying, no, the Spirit is still speaking today. And now here we are in 2018, and we're opening God's word, and we're reading the phrase today, September 9th, 2018, today. If you hear his voice, the Spirit's voice, speaking through his word, do not harden your hearts. The broader context of Hebrews chapter 4 is this idea of the people of God rebelling against God and them not being allowed to enter into the promised land because of their hard hearts and their disobedience, and they didn't listen to God's word and so this, this particular chapter is all about making sure that we are giving God our full attention and allowing him to speak to us. Someone shared with me this week that the Holy Spirit was involved in the writing of the word and in the receiving of the word. So the Spirit inspired the word, but he also illuminates the word for us to be able to understand it and receive it. You know, too often our worship services smell like formaldehyde. Like we're dissecting the Bible. We're pulling it up. Listen, you don't dissect living things. 
It is a living word. And so it needs to be read in its entirety. It needs to be taught in its full, broader context, not in tiny pieces, cutting it all apart. No, we're supposed to, as we're going to find out, we don't cut into the Bible. The Bible cuts into us. It is a living word that God has given to us. I was really uh, convicted this week. I was uh, getting ready to, to share this message with you guys, and I was uh, studying in a book, and, I, uh, and it mentioned a cross-reference, and I wanted to look up the cross-reference in my Bible, and I'm looking all over my desk. I couldn't find my Bible. Well, let me show you where my Bible was. <laughs> Do you see it there? And I, it was a really convicting moment. Here I am, trying to be faithful as a, as a pastor of this church, trying to be faithful in teaching the Word of God, and on top of the Word of God, I had put all of these other books. And I had just, going from book to book to book, and just set my Bible aside, and oh, what about, maybe there's an answer in this book, or maybe there's something, listen, only one of these books is living. Someone came up and encouraged me, you know, and said, you know, well, yeah, the book, that book is the foundation of all of those. That's not, that's not what really happened. <laughs> Listen, in the midst of preparing to teach the Bible, I lost my Bible. And I know, listen, I know if it happens to me, I know it can happen to you. Right? Life gets busy. You got all these other messages, you got all these other things, all these people that you're trying to please, all these voices that you're trying to listen to, and somewhere, although the Bible's at the very bottom, where it should be at the top, it's not even open. The Word of God is living. Allow His living Word to be the loudest voice in your life. And then the author goes on to say, the Word of God is living and active. So jot this down secondly. The Word of God is working. Working. It's not, it's not just that the Word is alive. It's also at work in our lives. It is working. It's living and active. An important distinction. The older I get, the more familiar I am with the concept of living without being active. I spend a lot of time now living without being active. I... I just like to just sit and do nothing. But I'm surrounded by these four boys who are the definition of living inactive. Always talking, always screaming, always punching, always jumping, always climbing. They're always doing something. I mean, even, even when they're sleeping. We went camping last weekend. I'm in a tent with them. I'm getting kicked and punched while they're sound asleep. I'm like, is our tent in the shape of an octagon? This is like mixed martial arts in the dark. <laughs> the Word of God is not just living. It is living and active. It is working. It is working. I love Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11, one of my favorite passages. For as the rain and the snow, yes, it's coming, loved ones. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose 
and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is working. It has a purpose. I remember when I was uh, dating uh, Lindsay and I discovered that she was a very astute theologian, which is the most attractive thing, young ladies. Inner beauty, sound theology. And, and she, she shared with me out of Isaiah 55, you know, that sometimes God's word comes like rain, sometimes it comes like snow. When God's word comes like rain, you know, you can see the difference immediately. The ground's all parched and crusty and crunchy and brown, and then rain comes and it's immediately green. It's amazing, but sometimes it's like snow. The ground's all brown, but then it turns white and it stays white for hopefully not too long, but a long time. And, and you wonder, is it actually working? Is it doing anything? But God has a purpose for that snow. It too is watering the earth to bring about transformation in God's good timing. Sometimes the transformation of God's word happens in an instant. Sometimes it's little by little over time. The word of God is working. I love this, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 12. I am watching over my word to perform it. God is personally present right now by his spirit to watch over as his word right now is going out from this book, from my mouth, into your ears, into your heart. God is watching over all of this to perform it. And we are engaged in the task that Christ has given us. We are called to make disciples of all nations. And, and the way that we make disciples is by teaching the word of God. We, we teach it in Harvest Kids, in our youth ministry, in our young adults, our small group, our men's and our women's ministry. For the past two centuries, the church has thrived through sound preaching, proclamation of the living and active Word of God. And God has been working for all of that time and is continuing to work. You know, the amazing thing is, is that human beings haven't changed. You go back 2,000 years ago, you, you, you look at the, the present day. I mean, sure, you, uh, our life expectancy might be a little bit longer. We might have access to a little bit more health care or technology. We might be a little bit more sophisticated in the way that we do certain things. But at the end of the day, human nature, humankind, we're exactly the same as when the author of the Hebrews was writing uh, this letter. We, we still long for the, we, we, we all just want to fit in somewhere. We just want to be accepted somehow. We all have the, the, the same struggle with, with discontent, desire for power or for control. These are all things that everyone in this room has in common. Everyone on this planet has in common. Everyone in all of history has in common. That's why we need something eternal that transcends not just this present day and this present context, but the Word of God, which is living and active. And that speaks to every human being in every situation. The word of God is working. And then thirdly, jot this down. We're going to spend most of our time here. It's the word of God is piercing. The word of God is piercing. The rest of the verse goes on to say, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews uses this analogy of the, the word of God like a sword. And I remember coming out of uh, university and looking at a lot of what was happening in the church uh, at the time. And, and what was going on in the church was a whole lot of this. 
Hey, come over here. We've got cool video presentation. Hey, we got a Ferris wheel. We got a puppet show over here, over here. Check this out. But there was nothing to pierce with. Just a lot of fluff. And then I got exposed to, to James McDonald in Chicago and Robbie Simons in Oakville. People who, listen, not perfect mind, men by any stretch of the imagination, not perfect churches, but people who are committed to proclaiming the word of God. And, 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 and saying, look, what do you want? What do you want in your life? What do you want to solve your problems? What do you want to go into battle with? A pool noodle or the word? Soft and cushy or piercing to the heart? And so I made a decision a number of years ago. I am done with that. And I am about this. This is what can bring, listen, if you have an encounter with the sword, you're not going to look the same after that. This is what has the power to bring about transformation. And this is how the author of Hebrews describes it. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Then it, it describes the things that it cuts through. It says, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I want to just zero in on the, those two words, soul and spirit there, and I want us to kind of put on our theologian caps here for a minute. I want to share with you two theological terms, dichotomy and trichotomy. This is, this is important for us to be able to understand this so that we can understand how to interact with other believers who might be misguided in their understanding of the way the Bible talks about humanity. So dichotomy is like a pair of dice, okay? It means two. Trichotomy is like a tricycle, it means three. So there's two different views of understanding how a human being is put together. Dichotomy, which is what the Bible teaches, is that human beings are made up of two parts. We have a body, and then we have a soul or a spirit. Those two terms are used as synonyms, along with heart or inner man. So dichotomy, we have a, we have a body, but then there's something else on the inside. Soul and spirit. Now, trichotomy is a misunderstanding that teaches that human beings are made up of three parts. That there's a body and there's a soul, but separate from the soul is the spirit. And people who believe in trichotomy, they, they think Hebrews 4.12, because it says dividing the soul from the spirit, is actually, um, is actually stating that. Well, well, if you take a close look at the passage, he's not concerned about dividing the soul and the spirit, he's, he's poetically using synonyms. You see, you don't divide joints from marrow. They're not even adjacent to one another. And so he's, what, he's, what he's doing is he's talking about things on the inside, like things of the spiritual realm, like our soul and our spirit. Those are like synonyms. Joints and marrow, those are both on the inside. It's not that we need to d divide those two. They can't even be divided because they're not connected. And so it, it's, it's a misunderstanding. Listen, there's a ton of other verses that I could go through with you now, but let me just share with you a couple of the dangers of understanding a trichotomist view of, of the way human beings are, 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 are put together. Trichotomist believes that so there's a body and that there's a spirit. Now the soul for, for a trichotomist is your emotions, your intellect, and your will. 
those, those three things. And the danger with trichotomy and then, and it, it is that you, you can sort of pass off the body as though it's unimportant. Sort of like this Gnostic view that, that what's happening on the inside is more important than what's happening on the outside. And beyond your intellect and your emotions and your soul, a trichotomist believes that there is this spirit and the spirit, we were spiritually dead, and so they believed that the spirit was dead until you believed in the gospel. And then your spirit is made alive. And the spirit is this upper echelon of, of human existence. And it's the spirit by which we interact with God. We don't interact with God according to our emotions or according to our intellect. We don't interact with God in our body. We interact with God exclusively in our spirit. Now, do you see why that could be dangerous? First of all, People who, who, who teach this, there's a real sort of anti-intellectual. Don't worry about your mind. Don't try to study. Don't try to grow. Meanwhile, the Bible tells us time and time again that we're supposed to, to be a workman approved who rightly handles the word of God. The other danger is that this, this whole spirit and me relating to God, it's highly subjective. If you ever try to get into an argument with someone who's a trichotomist and says, well, you know what, I just sense it in my spirit. I mean, that's just like a trump card. Like, what am I supposed to say to that? It's some sort of other, we can't actually reason about it. We can't actually have a, a, a debate. No, because that's, that's intellectual and I'm, I'm spiritual. Listen, we are called upon to be stewards of every part of our lives. Our, our, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we're, we're supposed to be looking after our bodies. We're supposed to be growing in our intellect so that we can love God more. And, and, and so with that, it's, it's a real danger of separating those things into three. The, the Bible simply uses soul and spirit uh, synonymously with one another, just as the author of Hebrews does here. Then it goes on to say, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The heart, the soul, the spirit. The Bible has the power to get to the very core of why we do what we do. Piercing the heart. The very first Christian sermon ever got right to the heart. The Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 gave a Christian, uh, uh, the first Christian sermon ever. And look at the reaction. This is what good preaching does. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Peter proclaimed the word of God and they were cut right to the heart. And notice how it leads to, to, to application. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? When we are truly cut to the heart, that leads to the question of application. How do I apply this? What, would, what should be the, the proper response to what I'm hearing right now? So good preaching exalts Jesus Christ, cuts to the heart, and then leads, leads people in the pathway of obedience to application of uh, the Word of God. Now it's interesting, it's not a, a, it's not a direct a quotation but Hebrews 4.12 uses the same language as Genesis 6 when it talks about the world population before the flood. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
You see, here's, here's what's so amazing about the power of the Word of God, is that the Word of God cuts through all of our excuses. It's my parents' fault. It's, it's upbringing. It's peer pressure. It's, it's, you don't know my sin. It cuts through all of our excuses and gets at the heart of why we sin and why there's dysfunction and trouble in our lives. It says the reason is because our hearts are sinful. And the word of God only has the power to bring that kind of conviction. It confirms what every human conscience is already saying. But it also brings the commands of the law of God to bring conviction on every heart. To show that every human heart apart from Christ, that the every intention of their thought is only evil continually. And then the word of God points to the answer. The answer then is Jesus Christ. If you look at Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 4, look at the very next verse, verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the word of God cuts through all of that. Everything we're using to try to cover up the shame of our sin. And it shows us that we are going to be accountable. How are we ever going to get our hearts right before God? Then look at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest. This is what the word of God does. It guts right at our heart. It shows us our sin. And then it shows us our Savior, our high priest, who gives us the opportunity to have our heart transformed, to be given a new heart. Now all of this is completely contrary to what we're being taught in our world, in movies and television shows, on radio programs, in our schools from junior kindergarten all the way up to master's and graduate level. Because what we're told time and time again is that we should listen to our hearts and that what's inside of us is good and true. And the problem is outside influences. And what we need to do is stop listening to outside influences and start listening to our heart. Now that's self-defeating on its face because what it is is there's an outside influence telling you that you shouldn't listen to outside influences. So I shouldn't listen to any outside influences except that influence that's telling me to listen. Do you see that? It doesn't really make much sense. The Bible says, no, no, no. There's lots of outside influences that are bad. You just got to make sure you get the right outside influence. You just need the word of God. And the word of God is going to pierce your heart. It's not going to confirm all of the desires that are in your heart. The other thing that's, that, that's so messed up about the way our world thinks about the inside and the outside is we're continually told, follow the desires inside of your heart. The reason, the reason why you're not happy is because all of this exterior pressure to, 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 to be a certain way, you know, let it go, let it go. It's all inside of you. Just be yourself. Just follow your desires. Well, the other problem is that our desires are so often in conflict. I mean, uh, I, I desire to, to eat healthy, but I also desire donuts. <laughs> Both of them are legitimate desires. Both of them are coming from inside of me, and I need to choose which one to live. And, and, and the world gives us no no rubric, no, no way to understand which desires are the right desires and which desires are the bad desires. I'm supposed to listen to my heart. Yeah, I have a bit of a desire to listen to my heart, but I also have a desire to do what everyone else is doing. So which desire am I supposed to follow? Young people, when you're at school, 
This happens with grown-ups too. When you see another a bunch of cool people picking on someone and bullying them, there's a desire inside of us, isn't there, to say, you know what, I should step in and I should say they should stop that. There's a desire to stop bullying, but there's also a desire to avoid being bullied yourself. So which desire are you supposed to listen to? It was just up to you and your heart. I mean, your heart's sending you all kinds of different messages all the time. See, but the Bible makes it clear. It cuts through all the thoughts and intentions, all the confusion, because we can't make sense of our own hearts. Je Jeremiah chapter 17 says, it says that the heart is deceitful above all things. It tells us one thing, then it tells us the other. It says it's desperately sick. We need surgery from the Word of God. And who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give man, every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. It's the word of God that brings the remedy, the healing. God performs surgery with the sword of the Spirit to change our hearts. And he promised it in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I'm going to get my word in their hearts. My sword is going to write my word on his heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So what the word of God does is it shows us who we are as sinners and it shows us our need for a savior. That's why Hebrews 4.12 leads us right into Hebrews 4.14 that teaches us about our great high priest. Which is a major theme in the whole book of Hebrews. Turn with me just to Hebrews chapter 8 and let's keep Jeremiah 31 on the screen there. Hebrews chapter 8. If you look at chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now the point in what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, talking about Jesus. Now look at verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Sound familiar? See it on the screen? He's quoting Jeremiah 31, look down at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. The, the, the book of Hebrews makes it clear that the promise that Jeremiah made, looking forward, Jeremiah condemned our hearts and says our hearts are sinful and deceitful, but he made a promise and he said a heart surgery is coming. A heart transplant is coming. The sword of the Spirit is going to come and to pierce hearts and change them so that God can now relate to his people in purity and in holiness. And Jesus, the great high priest, is the one who made it possible. He suffered and died. He took the blame for all of the evil and the wickedness inside of our hearts so that when we place our faith in him and admit that we're sinners on the outside and on the inside, it's no one's fault but ours. When we truly come clean and then believe in Jesus that he suffered and died for us as our high priest and rose again and then commit to follow him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the Bible promises that we are given a new heart. 
and we are transformed from the inside out. Loved ones, we don't just open the Bible, we let the Bible open us. And even when we have a new heart, we can still have sin creep into our lives. And the author of Hebrews talks about casting off every sin that so easily entangles to run the race that we have before us. The Bible tells us who we are as a creature and as a sinner and who Christ is as a savior and what it means to have our identity in him. But loved ones, the whole Bible, just like Hebrews 4, leads right into a, a declaration about Jesus as the high priest. The whole Bible points to Jesus. And Christian preaching isn't truly Christian unless the preaching leads someone to Jesus, to see how great he is, to see how gracious he is, to see how merciful he is, to see how powerful he is. You see, when we think about the word of God and we think about how it points to Jesus, it all comes together in the last book of the Bible. Look at Revelation chapter 1. In his right hand he held seven stars and from his mouth, from his mouth, from the mouth of Jesus Christ came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun in full strength. Revelation 19, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. The voice that we want to hear, the voice that we want to hear each and every Sunday when God's word is proclaimed, the voice that we want to hear when we open God's word in our personal devotions is the voice of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. The sword of the Spirit, the double-edged sword of the word of God is coming from his mouth. And it's coming at your heart. Here's the thing, sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it hurts to have an encounter with the sword. Sometimes it's like a scalpel. Sometimes it's very precise and gentle. But sometimes it feels a lot like a sword being shoved right in your chest. But this is what we are called to, loved ones. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but allow his heart to cut through soul and spirit and joint and marrow and the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. To open God's word, to open our hands, to open our hearts and say, God, Speak because your servant is listening. Because I know, God, even if it hurts, it's not a hurt that will harm. It's a hurt that will heal. And that if you need to pierce me by your word, God, and, and if I have to walk that narrow road of obedience, it will be worth it. Because I want to be close to you, because I love you, and I want to serve you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus who is the Word of God. And God, right now we want to lay our hearts bare before you. And Lord, we want to invite you to use your Word, God, to say what you want to say.
God, I pray right now for someone who's in this room right, right now who doesn't yet know you, Lord. I pray that your sword, the sword of your spirit, would be convicting them of their sin and their need for a Savior. And that their heart would not be hardened, but that it would be tender and open to you transplanting that heart and giving a heart of faith. God, I pray for those of us who are believers but who are living in rebellion or who are living dumb, uh, uh, or, sorry, numb to, 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 the, uh, to the way that your word is speaking. And God, I, I pray that you would speak and that we would listen and that we would be transformed. God, we want to set our hearts on you. We want to quiet all of the other distractions and God, we want you to work in our lives through your living and active word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.